What's going on, everybody? This is Dr. Marcia Casa. Welcome to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. I pray that this episode finds you just delightful today. I don't know what to say. God bless you. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Well, here we go. This is part two of the Hope Leads the Way lecture series that I'm offering. If you missed the first part, then I'm sure it's just right above this episode on whatever podcast app that you're listening to. And if you're finding this on the website, then I there is a link to it on the show notes that'll take you directly to part one. You want to listen to that one because this episode builds on what we started in that first episode. So in today's lecture, we're going to move beyond just looking at hope as a psychological trait in, in, in examining hope as a theological virtue. What does that mean? What does it mean to have hope as a virtue, as something that we have to acquire, some habit that we have to cultivate within us? Eh, well, here we go. You're going to find out in this lecture. I believe that this lecture really is the crux of this series, as well as, quite honestly, everything that I'm trying to do with this podcast, which is how do we really embrace our limitation? How do we find God's grace in the midst of the suffering? How do we choose to see God's goodness even in the midst of the difficulties that we are experiencing? That theme runs deep through this show, and you're going to hear it and expand upon it in full force in this lecture. So when it is done, please always find me on Facebook or on Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I look forward to listening to reading your comments. I enjoy dialoguing with my listeners and receiving their feedback about this episode and all episodes of the Always Hope podcast. So God bless you. Enjoy this talk and we'll catch you on the other end. Well, glory to God. Thank you all you beautiful masked people. Thank you all for coming back. It's good. I love the social distancing. Everybody's doing a wonderful job of that, adhering to it. So thank you all so much. Um, glad you guys came back. I hope I didn't yell at you too much uh, last night. So we'll see. We may, may get fired up again tonight. We'll see what happens. Um, okay, so here we are. Day two. Day two. And I really meant what I said in the prayer. You know, Mondays are always a particularly challenging day. You know, it's, it's always the day where we're, we're getting started on the week. We're trying not to think too, we're, we've already let go of whatever rest we had over the weekend and, and, and things have begun. And we're thinking about the many things that have to happen, the many projects that we need to do, the, 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 the schedule is there, the chores that need to be done, the kids that need to be taken where, whatever, all the things that we know that are pressing on us. And so I want us to just really just to take a moment in all sincerity to just kind of pause and to allow just an awareness of where we are right now. All those things will happen. It's okay. Work will happen tomorrow. Uh, schedules will be taking care of themselves. Uh, the kids will get to wherever they need to get to. But let's just take a moment, if we can, just to collect ourselves and just be present um, with each other here in this moment. And if you're joining us in the live stream, we thank you. And if it's not too chaotic at your home, wherever, I don't even know where the camera is, there you are, uh, then, then I pray that you can join us also. So let's just kind of take a moment and close our eyes and just kind of breathe. It's so easy to get lost in the things that are coming. Just be present. Here we are together as a church community. 
worshiping in this holy place. United with our Lord who is here present in the Eucharist. United with each other as a body of Christ. Amen. Okay. God is good. All right. All the time? Thank you. We got participation today. Yeah, last night I want, you know, a little want a little bit more, but it's all right. We're gonna get it tonight, so it's all good. All right, so let's uh, read let's 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 start where we left off yesterday. Let's recap yesterday. All right. We talked about hope being uh we examined hope from the science of psychology. What does psychology have to say about hope? And again, if you remember that it's really kind of a two-pronged approach is really what the psychologists are saying is you have to have certain goals for sure, but you got to have a desire to want to go achieve those goals, those, those things that you want to go do and accomplish. But you have to be able to have the capacity, the knowledge, the way powers was the word that was used to be able to go achieve them also. And so there's a both and to this. There's a desire and there's also a sense of agency, a sense of, 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 of capacity, of knowledge to be able to do that. All the while, you have to be patient for the right opportunities to present themselves, for the right information to, to, to emerge, for the right timing to be present for you to be able to go do those things that you feel that God has been put inside of your heart. And it's together the combination of all of that that we would say you have hope and they're able to live with hope and engage with hope. And so then hope in living from this and understanding this and doing this, it matters, it affects us, it's, it's pertinent to our emotional well-being. We need it. And that again, that it is a choice. We have capacity to be able to choose hope regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And that one can get tricky at times, and we're gonna unpack that a little bit more, but, but genuinely, I mean it sincerely, we do have a choice in what we feel and how we respond to whatever is coming to us how we engage with the present circumstances of our lives. That is our choice. Always is our choice. And so hope can be learned. It's what we're doing right now. And that hope is contagious. See, so often we think that emotions are just things that I hold on to myself. You know, hold on to that. Take care of your emotions. You know, suck it up, buttercup, all that stuff. You know, don't spread it all over, you know, whatever we say to one another. But the reality is emotions are actually communal. There's an element of it that's supposed to encourage one another. Like if they so hear hope, I'm trying to offer encouragement and blessing. If I came up here as, as somebody who was genuinely anxious and, and I shared all that anxiety, you would feel that anxiety too. It would stir up something inside of you. So hope, hope, if we use hope appropriately, hope can be contagious and can be used appropriately in our environments, our work environments, our family environments, our communities. You want to improve a community, you want to improve your job, hire hopeful individuals. Put high hope people in key leadership positions where they can then influence those who are with them and around them. That's one way of being able to solve some of the problems that we have. So hope is contagious. Therefore, we must be witnesses of hope. We have to be a people of hope. That's what the church has called us to be. So let's go into this. All right. That's what we talked about yesterday. All right, well, what are the limits of understanding and approaching hope solely from a psychological perspective? Well, I'm glad you asked because I get the answer to that question. Well, I would say this. The first one is this. 
And goals in and of themselves aren't necessarily virtuous. I'm thinking right now of, of, a, of a high school senior who, and this is kind of inappropriate, of course, that's the point, you know, who says, I want to lose my virginity by the time I graduate from high school. That's a noble cause, right? Sarcasm dripping out of my mouth. But let's just say this high school senior, this is his goal that he wants to accomplish. And he certainly has a desire for it. And so what does he do to increase his capacity of knowing how to do it? He wants to watch YouTube and he wants to talk to his friends and read all this different stuff or whatever. So he goes and he wants to achieve this goal. But is that goal inherently virtuous? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. I'm not encouraging that. Please, anybody listening, I'm not encouraging that at all. I'm just saying that's one of the limitations that I bring up as a scenario, that goals in and of themselves don't necessarily have to be virtuous. So we can't just rest everything on goals themselves. Because the truth of the matter is that natural goals, while they are good and while they, they give us kind of a sense of success, which is fine, at the same time, there is something that is, that is, that is empty in them or isn't always going to be enough. Because the truth of the matter is, some of us are genuinely suffering. Some of us genu have genuine hardships that have been imposed on us by life, by the circumstances that we find ourselves in, by, by certain things that are genuinely outside of our control. And it's hard to be able to be like, well, you just need to set certain goals in life and that's what's gonna get you out of this mess. That's not the way it works. You gotta tend to whatever it is that's there, that pain, that, that suffering, that circumstance, whatever that is, you gotta deal with that before you can genuinely move forward. So you can't just always be setting goals. I get that, I get that. So that I think is one of the limitations. But I think then as we're talking about this pain, this suffering that, that we experience sometimes, these hardships, this is where we're gonna be diving into today. This is where a theological understanding, a fuller understanding that builds on what we talked about, again, grace builds on nature, that builds on this, that will lead us to a deeper and more fuller, fuller appreciation for what we are speaking about when we say hope. Love this image. This is an image of the Holy Family journeying to Egypt. This is, uh, it's, it's uh, right after uh, Jesus is born and uh, the three wise men come and then they leave. And then Joseph has a dream that says, Herod is coming after the child, so get up and go. And so Joseph and his wife and their baby flee to Egypt uh, for some time that we don't know how long they were there. But it's a beautiful image to think about in terms of just our life as a journey. Our life as a migration, as a journey, that we're moving from one place to the other. You know, I have an appreciation for this as, uh, as an immigrant myself. My family, we, we left Nicaragua um, in the midst of a civil war that was happening in the late 70s and early 80s. And in 1981 or so, when I was just about a year, year and a half of age, my parents had to flee the country um, because of the civil unrest that was there. And we came here, we came to America. And my dad to this day always says we have to be grateful for this country because America did not have to open its doors to us. My parents actually tried to go to other countries that were not as generous as America was to us. And so we were grateful that we were able to come to this country and that my dad was able to reestablish his practice, his doctoral practice after, after a few years, but that he was able to provide and to have a future for us. And I know this story. I've heard this story many times. This is part of my upbringing. And, and my, I've asked my parents throughout the years, okay, why did we come here? What happened? What was the circumstances? All this stuff. And so I'm aware of this. 
But I'm sharing, with, sharing this with you right now because last year when the pandemic was kind of getting going and me, like everybody else, I'm sure had a sense of anxiety. Come, come April, May, you know, the numbers that were coming out were like, man, this thing's going to this thing's going to kill like 10% of the American population or something. I mean, that's the stuff that was throwing I was like, crazy numbers. You're like, that's like 100 million people or whatever. They're going to be dead by like June. You know, you're just like, what the heck? This is crazy. All this stuff, right? Obviously, we, 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 we know better in, in terms of um, this, this pandemic and, and we have a better sense of it right now. But nevertheless, when it first started, I mean, I joked about this in kind of some of our, in the lectures over the weekend, but I think about like a year ago, we were like washing our vegetables. Remember that? Remember how far, remember that when you did that? Leave the Amazon packages outside the door. Like, kids, don't touch. I remember yelling at the kids. I was like, don't touch that Amazon package. It's got to stay there for 24 hours because there could be COVID on it, right? I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm just trying to make fun of myself. But like, you know, how little we knew back then about it. And so all this fear, all this anxiety that we, that we experienced. So I was on the phone with my mom, talking with her, and she could sense that that, that anxiety was, was coming up. And so then she just started retelling the story of her immigration. She just started saying it. She's like, you remember, you don't know this, you were little, but she just kind of reaffirmed and said, we left the country when it was under civil war and, and you know, went through the whole piece of it all over again and how my dad was able to get his medical license here in America and the whole piece, the whole thing all over again. And she said all of that to just remind me that it's gonna be okay. They've gone through hardship. They've gone through hardship. That's the gift of, of, of our mature population, of our senior citizens. We have to be able to listen to our elders and hear their stories and hear what trials they came overcame in their lives. That is what gives us some sense of hope. So anyways, I, I, I say that really kind of in passing because this is a wonderful image for us to reflect on. Joseph Pieper, who is a German philosopher who has written a number of things about virtue, wrote a wonderful treatise on hope. And he says this, he says that really when we're thinking about our lives, we have to understand that we're in this kind of via, if I'm saying this correctly, status via Taurus, that we're kind of in this perpetual state of passing through. It's a funny way of thinking about it, but that's really what life is. It's like this constant state of moving, of, of passing through. Life is constantly moving. The streams of time are constantly passing by. Try as we may to hold on to a moment, we can't because it just kind of keeps going. And so we can look at, there's a beautiful, I think it's a beautiful reflection to really kind of think and to ponder. Because what it reminds us is that life is constantly unfolding. Life is constantly a journey. Whatever we're going through right now, it will pass. That's what St. Teresa of Avila says in her beautiful prayer, let nothing disturb you, nada deturbe. A life, all things are passing. All things are passing. Patience, patience alone endures all things. God alone is enough. God alone is enough. Life is constantly moving. Life is constantly moving. The gift of that, though, is that we shouldn't then hold on to or expect that any single moment in and of itself is going to be the one thing that's going to make us happy. We put often too much hope or false hope on singular moments to be the one thing that's going to be, if I just had that one thing, you know, if I just had like another 10 grand, 10 grand, that's all I'm asking for, just another 10 grand, and that'll be enough. You know, they do studies on people with finances, and that's constantly what we say. You ask anybody where they are financially, everybody says, mm, you know, if I had about 10 or 15% more, 
I would be happier. Everybody says that regardless of where they are. Now, again, I get it in terms of like financial, um, in terms of happiness and the correlation between money and happiness. It's really here. It's when you say that you have, uh, it, you know, when you have enough to make your means to, to pay your bills, money no longer makes you happy. The, right? If you're in poverty and you can't pay your bills, of course you need finances to be able to pay your bills. But once you're able to kind of meet your needs and pay your bills, having a 10 or 15% more isn't going to make you 10 or 15% more happier. But here we are. We always go through this and we always say these things. We make these claims. Why? Because we continue, we forget that life is passing, that life is a journey. And really, that should be a hopeful statement. No single thing is going to satisfy you. It's the journey. It's a life that's dedicated to prayer. It's a life that's constantly, constantly seeking the good, being firm in that disposition, longing for the good, seeking the good. It is those things that try to fill us. See, if we're really honest with ourselves, even if we're successful, even if we've achieved all the goals that we've set out for our lives, there's probably a part of us that still feels like this incompleteness. There's a part of us that feels this, 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 this void or this, 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 this incompleteness is the only way I can speak of. And we try, if, if, we're, if we're not in our faith, we're trying to fill that thing up. Of course, you would talk about the God-sized hole. That's kind of what I'm alluding to here. But we can fill that up with all sorts of things. That one thing, that 10 or 15% more, that car, that girl, that, stop, that job, that success, all those things that aren't bad in and of themselves, but they can't be that one thing that's going to fill that incompleteness that we experience. See, here's the challenge. That incompleteness is actually there by design. You go back to, to even the garden. Adam, before he fell, when he awoke and he named all the animals, he did his job, he did the thing God asked him to do, bring water to this thing, till the earth and name the animals. He did all of that, did a wonderful job with it. Very successful in his job. He had no competition there in the garden. So he was the cream of the crop, you know? Joking. Anyways, even though he did all those things and he was the best animal namer in the garden, um, he still didn't feel that, that it was enough and there was still something that was missing. And that which was missing, of course, was then found in his bride, in Eve. And the word that's used there is, is not just helper, it's more akin to savior. She makes up for that which he was lacking. But it was there. This is all before the fall. And we, we carry this. This is what John Paul II refers to as an original solitude in his theology of the body. He speaks about this, this notion that we all have, this kind of eternal longing. And so we can't, we, we, we should be respectful to this. We should be reverent to this because it's there. It's that longing if we pay attention to it. It's that which leads us to God. It's that which leads us to seek salvation. It's that which reminds me that in my limitation, in my incompleteness, God alone is that which can fulfill this. And God, not just in a singular moment, but God over my lifetime, God over eternity, God over a life that's dedicated to prayer, to goodness. That's what we're speaking about. It's not just about going on that one retreat or reading that one book or listening to that one lecture. Those things certainly can shape us and can change us. I've had many moments in my life where I've had fundamental changes because of a singular moment, but then it set me off on this path where God is constantly trying to teach. God is tr constantly trying to grow. 
God is constantly trying to, to fill this thing up. So when you experience that in life, regardless of where you are, right there is an invitation to hope. That is where we exercise hope, is when we feel that incompleteness or when we feel that longing. And since hope is an exercise, at times it is a choice. In the church, we refer to this as a virtue. So here's a brief uh, recap for you, not to get back into your catechism class, but here we go. In the Catholic tradition, we speak of seven virtues. Uh, the top four are prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. Just to give you a quick rundown, prudence is akin to wisdom, knowing when to make right decisions, knowing when to engage, kind of knowing and understanding what you're supposed to be doing. The prudent man is the one who knows how to engage when he's supposed to engage. Often prudence takes the form of patience. Similar with temperance then, we go temperance is a mastery of our desires, a mastery, not, not, to, not a suppression of our desires, but you need to have certain discipline over your desires so that the one desire that God is actually asking you to do, you can be attentive to. It's the temperate man who is able to then live fully from his heart because he has supreme trust and confidence that the one desires that, the desires that he allows to emerge are in fact the ones that God is asking him to. So that's what temperance does. Justice isn't just about balancing the scales. Justice is about giving what's due to the other person. What does the other person deserve? What, what does it mean to, to, to give them and to give them what they deserve? Justice is a good, good, good habit, good virtue. And then fortitude goes akin with courage and, and discipline and, 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 uh, and, and strength and magnanimity. So we speak about those four as, as human virtues, is what the church says, or cardinal virtues. They're hinges. They're hinges. They're ones that we have some sense of control over. We can grow in mastery of our passions. We can grow in being more just and more equitable to our neighbors. We can grow in being stronger and a little bit more courageous as a people. We can grow and learn from our mistakes and be a little bit more prudent and wiser the next time. These are what we refer to as the, the cardinal, the hinge, the, the, the human virtues. But the bottom three that we've been talking about throughout this are what the church refers to as theological virtues. Theological. That means that they come from God. That means to genuinely live out of faith, we need God. To genuinely love, we need God. To genuinely hope, we need God. We cannot even proclaim Jesus from our lips without the Holy Spirit. I cannot love my wife and my kids to the extent that they deserve without that grace of the sacrament of holy matrimony. And I cannot hope the way that God wants me to hope unless I continual, continually beg him and ask him for his grace. So true hope is a gift. Faith is a gift. Love is a gift. All of it is pure gift that we can open our hearts to receive. Beautiful. We have hope to the degree that we see God's goodness operating within the circumstances that we find ourselves today. To whatever degree that we can find meaning and purpose, that we can rest and cast our hope on God and on his providence, that is what we are speaking about. 
And it is, a, it, is, it is a virtue that is only exercised then in those times of trials, in those times of darkness. It's easy to be like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm hopeful when the bank is padded and everything's going all right. We're doing okay. No problem. Everybody's healthy. Great. Yeah, I got hope. God's going to be good. God's going to take care. No problem. Do we still praise God even when the sickness comes? I don't know. <laughs> if I'm being honest, I'm not always sure. It's a hard question to ask. What we try to exercise, we try to grow, we try to be able to be, uh, again, this better version of ourselves through the gift of this sacrament, through the gift of this virtue, excuse me. So, next slide. In the virtue of hope, more than any other, man understands and affirms that he is a creature and that he has been created by God. That incompleteness I spoke about earlier, it means that we are not capable of self-sufficiency. I'm not capable of taking care of everything that I want to take care of. I am not God. And every time I meet the limits of my humanity, in which I do often, every time I try to push on something or when I get something done and, and I always fall short or when I try to accomplish and move hard and, you know, because I'm a doer and I want to get things done. But man, I, sometimes I fall and I hit these walls and things, it just feels like these roadblocks that come across the way and I can't accomplish everything that I want to do. I can't just will myself every time to, to, to be perfect. I can't do it. I need God. And it's hope that reminds me that, okay, okay, Lord, I, you know, I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm trying. I'm trying. Not perfect. But I get it. And then you be reminded that I'm just a creature. That's all I am. And my body just happens to be together right now in this moment in time. And of course, hopefully it comes back. That's what we believe in the end. But nevertheless, that I'm not the creator of this plan. I'm not the creator of the universe. So this is why hope is then tied intimately to the first commandment. This is what the catechism says here, quoting straight from scripture. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, says the Lord. It is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and him only shall you serve. Where do we worship? Who do we believe that will take care of us? This is the same God who, when he's given the Ten Commandments, had just led the Israelites out of slavery. All the plagues, crossing the Red Sea. He's manifested himself through a pillar of fire. He's there. He's present. He has proven himself to be trustworthy. And he is saying, me and me alone, I and I alone am your God. So the catechism breaks this apart and says this way. It says, the first commandment embraces faith, hope, and charity. When we say God, we confess a constant, unchangeable being, always the same, faithful and just without any evil. It follows that we must necessarily accept his words and have complete faith in him and acknowledge his authority. He is almighty, merciful, and infinitely beneficent. Who 
could not place all hope in him, who could not love him when contemplating the treasures of goodness and love and the love he has poured out on us. Hence, the formula God employs in Scripture at the end and at the beginning of his commandments is, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. In the virtue of hope, more than any other, man understands and affirms that he is a creature before God. Creature before God. God, you know what you're doing. God, I don't always have the answers. God, I don't always understand why you guide me through the things that you guide me through. Lord, I don't understand everything that's happening in my life. I don't even fully understand myself. I don't know why I continue to fall into that sin over and over again. I don't know why, Lord, these things continue to happen. God, when is it going to be my chance? When am I going to get my break? Lord, when are you going to give me that thing that I'm looking for? Jesus, please. All of this are prayers of hope. They're sincere. They're honest prayers that you lay before the Lord with trust, with surrender, believing in his goodness, believing in his providence, believing that he who created the universe and put the stars in the orbits that they are in right now with the cosmos moving through the motions that they're moving through, that he who did all of that still loves and takes care of me. And that he knows and that he understands that sin has mucked this whole thing up. And he gets it and he responded accordingly. Hence Jesus. But he knows that for all of us, that even there are certain desires that he wants, sin has a way of messing things up. But still, God has the capacity to make all things new. All things work for the good for those who love Christ Jesus, says St. Paul. All things work for good. God has the capacity to turn all things for his good. For his good. You know, I, I counsel a number of folks who um, have left religious orders or, or left the seminary. And, and one of the things that I hear repeatedly from these individuals is, man, I was discerning. I thought this is what God wanted. You know, why did this not work out? Sometimes it's a healthy discernment they leave because they just felt that they weren't called to it. And sometimes they go through some challenge or some difficulty that, that unfolded in their time in, in, in formation. And it's in those circumstances where they, they, they're really lost, genuinely lost. Like, this isn't what I expected. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I planned for. I didn't want this to happen. I'm not supposed to be here. What do I do now? What does God want from me now? It's a sincere question. And so in our work of counseling, what I always try to do is to say, listen, I get it. Something bad happened. And it's real. And we're not going to sugarcoat it. And we have to acknowledge that something happened that wasn't what you planned to happen. But whatever that desire was for that one, for that life, God can still bring some good out of that. And there has to be some sifting that needs to occur. Because maybe there's something that needed to die. There's some, something that needs to be let go of. So whatever that is genuinely of God may come to fruition. And that even if it doesn't look exactly the way that you thought it was going to look, it will still come to pass. That's hard work to do, to readjust and recalibrate and to say, okay, life just smacked me in the face. This isn't what I expected, but how do I keep moving 
in the midst of this, hope. Hope. Hope that God never forsakes us. Hope that the cross is real. Hope that Jesus Christ, who lived and died and suffered, experienced everything that we experienced. And that there is a way to still be holy in the midst of all of it. You know, a couple years ago when I was going through one of my one of my many life crises that I've had, you know, just 40. I've already had like three midlife crises, I think, and just getting started, you know. It's awesome. Well, one of them recently, you know, I, you know, whenever, whenever you start going through something bad, you know, what are your, what are your, your, your good, well-intentioned friends? What do they always say? Oh, well, read the book of Job. Read the book of Job. Job's good. Read, yeah, people are laughing already. You know, you know where, I'm, you know where this is going. Read Job. Job. Job will cheer you up. You know, you feel like you're, everything's going bad. You know, read Job. So I was like, great, I'm going to read Job. You know what happened when I read Job? I hated Job. I hated Job. Job was not fun. Job was a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. So if you don't know the story of Job, I'm about to tell you what happens. So the story begins, the book of Job begins with this lovely celestial dinner party. God's having this little party and all the angels are up there having a good time. And, then, and God's bragging on Job. God's like, man, Job's the man. Job loves me. Job's got it all together. He never fails, you know. He's doing so many good things for me down there on that earth. I freaking love that guy. He's awesome. He's crushing it. So it's just like that, it's scripture. That's my translation of scripture, you know, but that's something like that, you know. That's what God's doing up there. And so then Satan makes his way to this little celestial dinner party and he interferes and says, hey, you know what? The only reason that Job's doing so good is because you're so good to him, you know? Like, let me have him for a little bit and we'll see if he still blesses you and praises you. God says, okay, touch it. anything but his life. You can't kill him, that's what he says. Something like that. So he goes down and then the bad things happen that you all know about. He loses his wife, his kids, his livestock, everything, gone. So, so Job goes from this, this place of prosperity and this place of health and wealth uh, to, to, to falling into the pits. And Job, and in case you don't, if you've never prayed with scripture and you think it's all, you know, saccharine and sweet, let me just read a little bit of, of, of Job's despair here. So this is chapter seven. And tell me if you've never, if you've had these days before. Job says, is not life on earth a drudgery? It's days like those of a hireling, like a slave who longs for the shade, a hireling who waits for wages. So I have been assigned months of futility and troubled nights have been counted off for me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? Then the night drags on. I'm filled with restlessness until dawn. You ever have those nights? Those aren't fun. Can't wake up at three o'clock in the morning, can't get back to bed. Not a lot of fun. That's Job right there. My flesh is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin cracks and festers. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and they come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is like a wind. My eye will not see happiness again. Man. <laughs> he, he goes, he keeps going. I'm going to stop right here. He goes, how long before you look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my spit? What a prayer, huh? Come on, Lord. If I sin, what do I do to you, a watcher of mortals? Why have you made me your target? Why have you made me your target? You know that feeling? It's like the word, man, Lord, you're just, come on, man. You know, I'm trying. 
I'm freaking trying. And it just, everything just seems to not want to work for me. It's a Job saying. It's like, I got this target on my back and you're just taking delight and wanted to take me out. Why do you not pardon my offense or take away my guilt? For soon I shall lie down in dust and should you seek me, I shall be gone. <laughs> Sweet Jesus. What a prayer. What a prayer. So Job's real. Job's visceral. Job's in it. He feels it. And we've all had those moments where we have felt that type of just like darkness and in, in, in despairing and in, in, in fear and in, in, in judgment. You know, it's like, man, why don't you help me out? You're supposed to, I thought you said that the, the burden was easy and the yoke was light. That's what your scripture says. Where's that day? I haven't had that day yet. When's that one going to come? Start making these kind of accusations. It's okay. It's right there in scripture. It's okay. It's okay to have those days. It's okay to have them. So what happens is that Job, after he has lamented and said these prayers, the majority of the book then is that his well-intentioned friends show up. And his buddies, his three buddies, think that like Job must have committed some grave sin. And so because he must have committed some grave sin, that's why this bad things are happening. And Job's like, listen, I didn't do anything. And it goes back and forth. I didn't do anything. I didn't, and he just defends himself back and forth over the course of, of most of, of the book. And then finally, in chapter 38, towards the end of the book, God finally shows up. God finally, after seeing this debate happening between Job and his friends and this other little the guy, Elihu, who shows up a little bit later to the scene, God sees all this and finally he shows up. And so when I was reading this, I was like, okay, great. This is the part of the story where God's going to say, hey, Job, guess what? I had a little dinner party. I was totally bragging about you. And this is what happened. I was ready for that to happen. That's not what happens. This is what happens. God shows up and he says this to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, who is this who darkens counsel with words of ignorance? Gird up your loins now like a man. I will question you and you will tell me the answers. Where were you when I founded the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its size? Surely you know. Who stretched out the measure line for it? Into what were its pedestals sunk? And who laid its, its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of glory shouted for joy, who shut within the doors of the sea when it burst forth from the womb? And he goes on and on and on. Were you there? Were you there when I created this? Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did this? And when I first read it, it feels like it comes across kind of harsh. It's like God's like putting Job in his place. He's like, stop it, you know, enough. But there's an element of that that seems like a chastisement, but there's something of it that's actually kind of truthful, isn't it? In the virtue of hope, more than any other, man understands and affirms that he is a creature and that God is the creator. That is what God is trying to remind. That's the whole purpose of the book of Job, is to remind all of us that, listen, relax. It's okay. It's hard. But God is in charge. You know, we say this kind of glibly sometimes. God's got it. God's got it. All these cliches we throw. I just, I, okay, this is my rant. Here's my rant. Are you ready? I hate, I hate the Christian cliches. Can I just say that? God's got it. What does that mean? I don't really know. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Yeah, he does. That, that one's BS. Okay, I'm calling a flag on that one. All the time. 
All the time, he gives me stuff that I can't handle. I just read the book of Job. You know, that one, don't say that one to anybody. That one's, not, that, one's, that one's awful. God can't give you more than he can't handle. Yes, he does. All the time. Why? Because he wants to remind me that I am not him and that I need him and that I need to be able to grow in him. So these moments in life where I cannot handle anymore, absolutely I need to know that's there because I need God. That one's one. Here's the other one. We lost a house back in August. There's some crazy circumstances. Uh, and uh, just re- literally, literally the night before we were supposed to close, like this massive water leak opens up in the house and it just turned into like a water park. Water just well, going all over. I was like, but nuts. Like this ain't happening. We're out. We had to terminate this contract the, literally the night before we were supposed to close. It was awful, awful experience. And so all of my friends who want to be nice and offer their little words of affirmation, they would say, God's got something better for you. God didn't want you to have the house. He has a better house for you. You know, thank you. Thank you for your words of wisdom. By the very fact that I didn't buy this one because of the massive leak that opened up, yeah, you know, whichever one I decide to invest $300,000 into actually will be a better purchase. So yes, of course the next one's going to be better. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Excuse my cynicism and sarcasm as it's dripping because I, I loathe these type of statements. Why do we offer them? We offer them because we feel uncomfortable with it. What else are my friends supposed to do when they find out that like the house that we thought we were going to get, that we were excited about, that we were all packed up and ready to go. We were going to close and move the same weekend. We were ready to make this thing happen. My house was fully packed up. And then the other house broke, but it fell, like, like I said, the night before. So when I had to terminate the contract, I had to then unpack everything that I packed. I literally paid a piano mover $150 to pick up my piano, drive it around town for three days, and put it right back in the same spot. That is what you call a waste of money. You understand? A complete waste of money, time, and effort. But you know what? God's got something better. God's got something better for you, Mario. He really does. Thank you. Thank you. I really, I genuinely, I know I really don't like that statement. Please don't say that right now. I'm struggling, man. I'm hurting. Just let me hurt. <laughs> you know? Like, and that's the problem is that we feel uncomfortable with other people's pain. And so we have to kind of. You good? You got you, you good? You're right? Okay, hey, uh, text me. Text me if you need me, all right? Uh, right, bro, I'm right there for you, okay? Anytime, anytime. That's what we do. We don't know what it means to enter into somebody else's struggle. To have genuine compassion. Compassion means to suffer with one another. To genuinely enter into that and be like, man, this is me, by the way. The, the podium is me. That's, that's what I was doing. I'm hugging myself right now, all right? It's a little weird, but that's what's happening, right? That's, that was what's going on in my mind. A little pat on the head. Our friends do that. You move on. Now we just have to kind of engage with people. We say, okay, hey, this, this stinks. This is hard. But it's okay. It's okay. That requires more of myself as a true friend to engage with somebody suffering, to walk with them, to offer genuine compassion, suffering with, genuine consolation, entering into their solitude, being with them, being present with them, and not just offering cheap little glib platitudes. Hey, God's got it. Yeah, he does. And remember, hey, God ain't, God ain't gonna give you more than you can't handle, bro. You know, you got that one, right? All this stuff. Gotta, gotta engage. We got to engage. We got to engage. So 
don't even know what I'm talking about right now. What time is it? All right, here we go. So we go back to the Job story. And we are reminded then that this, this, God is God and we are not. Let's go to the next one. So therefore, brothers and sisters, listen. If life is a journey, we have a destination. The way I like to think about it, more than life being a journey, I like to think of it more as life being a pilgrimage. You ever gone on a genuine pilgrimage? Anybody here ever done the Camino? I haven't done the Camino. Anybody here done the Camino? Any? Yeah, right? Maybe? Yeah. What an awesome experience, right? You knew where your destination was. That's the, that's the difference. A journey, sometimes you don't know where you're heading, but a pilgrimage, you got a very clear destination, and you know where you're going. And so you do the walk, and the walk is, what is, is part of it. What an awesome way of thinking about this. So if we're moving then and journeying, where are we journeying to? Well, if we're living the life of virtue and the life of prayer, where we're, we're moving towards heaven, and that's our goal. So only when the future is certain as a positive reality does it become possible to live the present as well. The one who has hope lives differently. We see this, of course, eschatologically. Again, I'm thinking about the marathon right now. The marathon really is, a per, like I said, a profound experience for me. At one point in the marathon, I think it was mile 19, I'm running this thing. It's like three hours of me running, four and a half hours since I've had anything to eat, anything solid to eat outside of like, you know, energy drinks and protein goo and whatever that stuff is, you know? And I'm running and at some point I'm like, why am I, do why am I doing this? You know, like I could stop right now and my life would go on. No one would think anything lesser of me. But uh, why am I do like, well, like, it's like it really, it, was, it plagued me for like two miles, like 19, 20, 21. I was like, I, really, Mario, like you could just stop. You could stop at any point right now and it isn't going to matter. But then I was like, no, I've committed myself. I wanted to do this thing and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see it all the way through. And so I did and I shared about the, the experience that I had. Just a little microcosm, right, of what this is. When our future is certain, right, when, 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 when what we are hoping for is in fact truth, when we rest our hope on that which is real, the real, the reality, God himself, well, then it is possible then to live the present as well. But here's the gift. Next slide. This is Pope Benedict XVI in his encyclical Space Solving. He says this. His kingdom is not an imaginary hereafter situated in a future that will never arrive. His kingdom is present wherever he is loved and wherever his love reaches us. His love alone gives us the possibility of soberly persevering day by day without ceasing to be spurred on with hope in a world by which its nature is imperfect. So here's the, here's the mystery of the Christian faith. It's not so much that there's a pilgrimage that we're going on and we get to the end. It's like, okay, if I have enough tokens and I've done enough, I get to it. Rather, it's the opposite. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's not some here, imaginary hereafter situated in the future will never arrive. It is here. It is now. It is present if we have the eyes to see. The gift of our faith is certainly that in the Eucharist and we will adore the Lord in a few minutes. Adore him, him who is hidden behind this, this, this sacrament of, of the Eucharist. But God who is in all of eternity is here present with us. We see it certainly there, but then we experience it, that grace that we have inside of us. This isn't just some fable. This isn't just some myth. This isn't just some story. 
His kingdom is alive in each and every single one of us. Now, now, if we have the eyes to see and the ears to listen and the capacity to engage in the life that God wants for us, we choose hope. We choose it every day. We choose it every day. Whenever I'm, 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 I'm disciplining my kids, and I know I'm going to be a little firm with them, you know, if I've done that sincerely and out of charity, if it's genuine discipline, even if it hurts their feelings a little bit, it's going to be okay. Why? Because I have the long game. See, the mistake that parents make is often you're, you're, you're too fixated on the moment. You have to have the long game when it comes to your kids. My job is to raise functioning adults. So I'm trying to steer this towards that end. And so the little tweaks and turns we have to do, we have to get us to that, all right? That's what we're trying to do. I want to be healthy, productive members of society that hopefully I can worship all eternity uh, with. So that's my job with my kids. And so I choose hope when I have to discipline them because I'm saying, man, this stinks, but you know what? It's for the greater good that we're trying to get to. Every time that I, that I put out a podcast or, or something, man, you know, it's like sometimes I feel this anxiety or I'm like, oh my gosh, is anybody going to be listening? Does anybody really care or any of this other stuff? Whatever, I still want to do it. I choose hope in those moments. When I choose then to find rest and comfort in my wife, I choose hope. The opportunity to choose hope is Always there. Always there. Whenever you choose then to say, all right, I'm fixating on this greater good, but I'm trying to move towards that and with hope that that will, will, will in fact manifest, you choose hope. You choose it and you exercise it and you grow, you grow in your capacity. So we choose hope each and every single day. And this is our story. This is our journey. This is what we're trying to get to. Mm. Okay. I could preach on this all night. I got a few more minutes. A couple more things I really want to make sure we kind of wrap this, we get to tonight. All right. So the, the next thing I want to talk about here, just before we end, I want to talk about the opposite of hope. And here's a quote from St. Augustine that says, nothing, there are two things that kill the soul, despair and false hope. So let's go ahead and talk about despair real quick. Despair, as I've kind of been mentioning a little bit on and off throughout, is awful. It's awful. Cynicism. Cynicism is the worst. You know, I mean, I said this last night, but I mean, sincerely, like, when you're cynical, it's like everybody's an idiot. You know, everybody's an idiot. Everybody's an idiot. Nobody knows anything. That statement, that's awful. Or when like everything becomes an inconvenience, oh my goodness, like one more thing I got to do, like, ugh, right? It, everything becomes a drudgery. It's awful. Why is it awful? Well, because when we're despairing is that we've like, we've like, the journey's over. The journey that we're talking about, this, this, this being in a constant state of passing by, it's like we're not passing anymore. We've stopped. And when we despair, we, we plant our feet down and we say that the period is done at the end of the sentence, and there's nothing more that can happen. And that's why despair is, is, is the antithesis of hope. And because hope is always about possibility. Hope is always about the next thing that could happen. But to despair is to say, oh no, there's nothing else. So the gift of our faith is that even in death, we should not despair. And I don't want to make light of this because the hardship, of course, is, is real. 
And we all are going to have to meet our maker. But that's the belief that we have. And this is why, again, that only a theological virtue of hope that we've exercised throughout the course of our life and that God has repeatedly proved himself to be faithful in our lives. Repeatedly. That even when we approach death, that we can die a peaceful death in hope, in trustful surrender, that God himself, who has proven himself faithful throughout the course of my life, will prove himself faithful even in the end. Despair throws shade on all of that, to use an expression. So we want to resist despair. We want to resist any sort of, of despairing. Because what when we let despair harbor within our hearts, what quickly follows is cynicism, but then also what quickly follows is, is resentment towards what is good. We then resent those things that are good. We then have a hatred for those things that are good because we have allowed despair and cynicism and resentment to take over. It's ugly. It's ugly. You know, it's hard. And I get it. I recognize it. There's certain moments in my life that I, I don't like to revisit because I felt this kind of hardness. I don't even like to look at pictures of those times in my life because it's just painful to remember sometimes those experiences. So we want to caution. Anytime you feel in your heart that there's a significant judgment or a despairing thought that comes, want to go ahead and just kind of button that up and, and, and bring yourself back into a place of, of, of surrender towards the Lord. Now, the other thing that St. Augustine is speaking about here is false hope. What does he mean by false hope? I would say presumption is another word that we can use here, which is also dangerous. What are the things that we genuinely put our hope in? And if we put our hope in the lesser things, not in the reality, in the major thing, then the lesser things will always, always fall short. And that is the danger of being presumptuous, of being too casual, too cavalier, uh, too, too, too lackadaisical, with our hopes and our desires. When we think that there's just quick fixes to all the solutions, when we fail to, to, to recognize the complexity of the problems that we're encountering, all of this is a false hope, is a presumption. So why is this problematic? Well, first and foremost, presuming presumption or false hopes can lead to a certain laziness. I got it, you know, it's, it's gonna be all right. Or, or, or a lack of recognition of the challenge and the struggle that's actually going to take to improve whatever the circumstances you're doing. What did I say last night? Hope anticipates the obstacles. Presumption's like, bro, it's going to be easy. We got this thing. You know? Not that at all. Because eventually that falls short. Eventually then we can develop a sense of entitlement if we feel that, or we quit in the process. And that's tough. That's That's tough. Because despair then can be a very quick slope right back to, I mean, false hope can be a very quick slope right back into despair. And this is a challenge when it comes to spiritual matters. And I say this with reverence. But do you ever put your hope in something you thought was God but actually wasn't God? That's a tough one. That's a, that's a mind-numbing experience if I've ever had one. You thought it was God but it wasn't God and then it fell apart and blew up in your face. So what does that mean about God? God didn't change. It wasn't God's problem. I fell into some presumption about who I thought God was. And I got a little too casual in my relationship and forgot to still manifest that fear and reverence before the Lord. Forgot that, yeah, I'm a creature and he's God. So I still have to rearrange and put myself back up there. But this is one of the challenges. 
So we have to caution and guard our hearts about certain spiritualities that might err on the side of presumption. Because presumption then can fall, like I said, quickly back into despair. This is why I rail against the health and wealth gospel, prosperity gospels. None of that is of the Lord. God isn't just some, some slot machine, genie, rub the lamp, and it's just going to come out exactly what you want. It's not the way it works. There aren't magic tricks. There aren't special formulas. If you just go, do, 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 bam, I get exactly what I want. That's not the way it works. That reduces God. It makes him into a, a mechanism, a toy that I can play with or, or some machine that I can control. That's not the way this works. Why? Because I'm not God. We must always have a certain reverence before the Lord. So we have to have respect for the fact that God is doing something and that I can't just manipulate the mechanisms. So how do I know if I'm falling into presumption? Pay attention. Pay attention. This is the gift of doubt, I would say. Are there certain things that you're encountering? Are there certain ideologies that you've heard that just don't quite fit right? Certain things that maybe you've heard people say that you're just like, man, I'm not really sure if that's what the church teaches. It's okay to be aware of that. It's okay to open your heart to that. And then go find the truth that God actually wants. It's okay. It's okay. If you have questions about certain experiences that you've had, it's all right. Bring those before the Lord. Submit yourself truly to the magisterial teachings of the church. Come to understand the fullness of what God actually wants. See, anything that wants to make God small and into a box is not the Catholic way. That's a fundamentalism that is not in accordance with what the church actually teaches. God is not some myopic little thing that we can just kind of manipulate. God is always supposed to be something bigger. And so resist the temptation to make him really small. Open yourself up to the mysteries that God has. And if you do have some doubts that do emerge, again, it's okay. We're on a journey, like we said. And those doubts are probably there to, to, to spur you on to go find the truth. See, sometimes God says, you know what? Like in the spiritual life, when, when God turns off the lights, we say, well, why did God turn off the lights? I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. But sometimes it's like, hey, buddy, pay attention. Follow me. All right? That was good. Come over here. I got something better for you. Right? And so we have to kind of be faithful to him as we're navigating the darkness. So it's okay. Resist false hopes still. Resist the lesser hopes. Resist those lesser things that are not genuinely God, because those things will always fall short and will eventually lead to despair, which ultimately kills the soul. So pay attention to your fears. Last slide, please. Let's go and wrap this thing up. Right there, actually right there. That's where we want to be. Perfect. So let's go back to then this passage from Romans. And this will just bring it all beautifully back together again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We have been justified by faith. We have been given that which we deserve, and that which we deserve is him alone, his life. He has given himself entirely to us. And by his death and his resurrection, he has opened for us that which we are, 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 are ultimately called to, which is to be like him. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And through this grace, we stand, brothers and sisters. We stand not just on our own feet. We stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the witnesses of everybody who's come before us. We stand in, in, in unison with the church that is praying for us. We don't stand alone. We stand with the Lord and all the people who have come to love and to have served him. And so then, not only that, but we even boast of our afflictions so that we can share our stories with those who come after us so that we can encourage and then we go through the whole thing again, right? Knowing that afflictions produce endurance and endurance proven character, proven character, hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Only the Christian can proclaim that. Only the Christian can look at this and say that this was good. Do you realize this is, again, every Catholic church has a crucifix, a crucifix. That's not, where's the crucifix? That's Jesus risen. I'm, I'm sorry. You know, the stations of the cross, there he is right there. As a constant reminder, a constant reminder that we are unified with this and that this, we call it Good Friday. Good Friday. The day he died, we call that good. How do we call that good? You with me? You see what I'm saying? God uses all things for his good. All things, because this is a story that we all believe and profess. So let's cling to hope. Let's enter into this time in prayer as we offer ourselves to the Lord um, in this meditative time in adoration, just bringing our doubts before him, whatever fears we may have, offering those to him, Whatever joys we've received throughout the day, offering those as well. Whatever, whatever hearts of gratitude that we may have, we want to offer those to Jesus as well. Okay, so yeah, I forgot that we uh, ended with adoration on the second night, but uh, that's okay. You know, you still listen to the talk and hopefully you got something out of it. And if your heart is felt, if you feel moved to go to adoration right now or to take a few minutes and just to be praying with the Lord, then please pay attention to what's going on in your interior space. But thank you guys for being with me. Part two is done. Next week, part three will drop and we'll finish this series on Hope Leads the Way. So God bless you. Hope you're doing well. Have a great day. Be good. God bless.